Welcome to episode 10 of the Passionate Purpose Podcast, where we interview people over 50 who are pursuing new direction for their lives. It's an opportunity for men and women to tell their stories, their way, in their own words. I'm Greg Gerber, the founder of Forward from 50, and your host for today's show. Eric Pearson was not a typical college student when he was growing up in Maryland. It took him 15 years to get his undergraduate degree and another 12 years to earn his master's degree. His first professional job was working as a teacher and coach for a prep school. He left that job for a position with Westinghouse, which later became Northrop Grunman, where he wrote technical support documentation while configuring data for the company. Eventually, he landed a job as a corporate trainer and developed a program to lead young professionals through a leadership development process. The program worked. In fact, many of Eric's students at Northrop Grumman moved on to successful careers at Google, Amazon, Motorola, Honeywell, and other major tech firms. When he retired in 2018, Eric found renewed purpose as a middle school substitute teacher. He read a story in a local newspaper about the desperate need for substitute teachers, so he submitted an application and was quickly approved. The paper did not exaggerate. Eric said he could fill in as a substitute every day of the week if he desired. Teaching isn't the only thing that Eric does to stay busy. He has also published several books, all on different topics. To tell his story about the impact he has as a 70-year-old helping to teach new skills to middle school students, as well as his ability to change the lives of adults through his books, please welcome Eric Pearson to the show. Thanks for joining me today, Eric. Can you tell me a little bit about you, where you're from, and what you did for a living? Well, where I'm from, I was born in Van Nuys, California, but I didn't live there long. My family, I went, uh, when I was very young, my dad went back to college and got his direct, got his undergraduate at North Carolina State University. Then we moved up to Maryland, and I lived in Maryland from 1956 until uh, my wife and I, I retired, and then my wife and I gravitated to her hometown of Elizabethtown, Kentucky in 2000. And, uh, 1416, we moved it, we moved to different kinds of paces. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have done, a, I have done a lot of different things in my life. It took me 15 years to finish my undergraduate degree. Wow. And I went back later and got a master's degree, a dual master's degree at Johns Hopkins, uh, another 10, 12 later. Okay. And, uh, are you in Kentucky now? I'm in Elizabethtown, Kentucky now. Okay. Uh, Yes, my wife and I, after 34 years, uh, formally separated as of December. So you talk about major life changes. Um, not sure what and why. She said she had to be on her own. Uh, she has an anxiety and depression issues, and I wasn't filling whatever she needed in her life. So mm -hmm. we separated. So I've started all. So I've started all over again as of December of this past year, uh, creating a life uh, for myself and doing different things now. Okay. Do you have any kids or grandchildren? We have, uh, we had four children. Uh, we now have three, uh, uh, Kathy and I, our first child is from my second marriage. Uh, Ryan was, Ryan was, uh, born uh, profoundly disabled in 1989. Uh, he wasn't supposed to live two years. He lived 14 years and passed Long. away in 2004. And that's the first book that I wrote was, was his, the, the, the the story of his life, my grieving process was to, was to publish the story of his life. Although I'm not a writer, I'm an engineer and a mechanic and a lifeguard. <laughs> okay. A uh, lifeguard. That's interesting. 
Have you always been? Well, I grew, up, I grew up in the Severn River, and I cut. I, I uh, of the lifeguard at Sandy Point State Park on the bay. I managed swimming pools. Uh, I coached soccer, swimming, basketball, and lacrosse for fifteen years in my early days uh, when I was in my twenties and early thirties. Okay, and you said you're an engineer. What kind of engineer? So now I'm a well, I'm a radar engineer. I uh, I became a I. Went to Westinghouse, which became Northrop Grumman, and, and uh, started at the bottom writing writing uh, documents and doing data management and configuration management. And I gravitated to some leadership roles and took over a lot of things. And I got my master, dual master's in uh, at Johns Hopkins and at the Whitney School of Engineering. Uh, and I ran major, I ran programs. I ran organizations, departments, labs. Then I made, ran major programs. Then and I was in charge of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I created, I created and developed a new graduate development program and a, uh, leadership de- training program across the country for our sector out of Northrop Grumman back in 2002. Okay. Wow. That sounds uh, pretty impressive. What did you like about it? That's another career. That's another career <laughs> I created me. <laughs> what did you like about that work? It, the, uh, I'm a people person and I think that, uh, I've always been led to to, uh, help other people. And it's more important for me to see other people see successes. Uh, never been afraid to fail. I failed at many things I was told I could never possibly do. And, uh, I think that we, to help inspire other people, the fact that you can, you can do things and it's okay to fail, failing, failing, it's good learning. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed creating, creating programs and seeing the success of people. Of course, now that I'm retired, I see so many of those young people not only staying with North of Grumman, the company, but they're also all over the country. These are some of the brightest of the brightest. And I have helped foster them when they decided they've had enough of the radar and defense industry. They're at Google and Amazon and Motorola and Honeywell. They're all over the country doing a lot of really good things, pursuing their own dreams. That's neat. So you were kind of a mentor for them in the corporate world. Yeah, I guess I, I had I, the, the leadership training. Yeah, I probably hired over 2,000 engineers wow. for a 10-year period and ran them in a rotation program. It was slotted to be a two-year rotation program, but then I created a leadership uh, development program uh, and put 650 people through that program over the 10 years I ran that one. Wow. That's got to bring you some satisfaction. Uh, great satisfaction and joy. Not, not, no. Yeah, a lot of it was the creation of it, but the biggest part was turning over the reins to the young folks and letting them recreate and change and grow the organization to be what they wanted it to and what they wanted to get out of leadership. So I they ended up, you know, we 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 would um, meet twice a year from across the country, uh, in at either at the Kentucky Mountains up by Camp David or out in out in uh, Cambria. At Camp Ocean Pines, I'm to 85 to 100 people, and they would get together. And I, I allowed the young folks who had been in the program a while, they created the entire, they spent six months creating the entire agenda for the entire weekend. I gave them a basic straw man of what requirements were, gave them a $25,000 budget, and I sat back and, and uh, watched them grow. Oh, that would be fun. Do you have any hobbies that oh. you pursue? Well, I play golf a lot. <laughs> I love to, and I, I really enjoy writing books. I, mean, I'm, I don't propose to be, a, I will never be a bestseller because I'm not going to market and sell, but I love, uh, I love doing that. I do, uh, I'm renovating, I'm renovating my house here that I bought in December. I like to do 
uh, yard work and renovations, uh, landscaping and, uh, spending time with the kids and the grandkids, of course, uh, is, is really an important thing to do. We kind of drift away in life and then we drift back together as we get older. So I kind of enjoy doing that. How many grandkids did you say you had? I have, uh, what have we got? Five, six, seven, about <laughs> seven or eight grandkids now. <laughs> That's neat. I have to count them up myself every time somebody asks me that question. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, uh, you like to rate books. Does that mean you like to read books too? I used to read a lot. I used to read all the time. Um, yes, I in uh, I like to read. Uh, I like to write nonfiction, but I like to read fiction. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like to escape. I will. You know, we would go on vacation and ten day vacation. I'd read ten books. Uh, Three days later, I probably I mean, thoroughly enjoyed them. I'd read a book a day because I just got really deep into it. Mm -hmm. And then three years later, I couldn't remind, I couldn't remember what the title of those books were. Okay. <laughs> I just, I moved on to the next one. Mm -hmm. And so before 50, it sounds like the one thing that you were really proud of was this leadership development kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. That's probably the thing that I've seen the most, the greatest impact of young folks as they come out of college, think they know it all. And, uh, but, but are still aspiring to learn, to learn more and, and to give them the opportunity to create and grow themselves as a leader in a, a non-threatening environment. Because if they fail in my leadership program, all they've done is, you know, learn more. Right. And, and, and then the, the, what money I put in the program is minor compared to doing a major, uh, major design error because they rushed through it and they didn't collaborate with their peers or the senior staff, because, you know, we had some of the brightest radar, uh, engineers in, in the world. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So after you turned 50, what did you do that really invigorated you and gave you a new sense of purpose? Okay. Let's see. After I turned 50, I tried to think back how far that was. Oh my goodness. Now. So, okay. So, oh. So the turn, okay. So that's where, so, so I turned 50, uh, so that would be 50, 40, 99. So okay. that's, so when I turned 50, I had, uh, fairly young and I, 19, 1997 was when I finished my master's degree. And so 1999 was when I started in a major leadership role at North of Grumman in 2002 is when I was given an opportunity to to take over the hiring of, of, of engineers and creating the rotation program, leadership program. So that just, that rolled right in right after I turned 50. Okay. So you were still working when you turned 50. What are you doing now that's giving you a new sense of purpose? Okay. Well, now I'm still, I'm still writing books. I've, I've just got my print copy of my third book the other day while I was gone and I, I'm finished going through it. I'm about ready to release my, my third book. I, I play golf. Uh, I just got back from North Carolina. I am the transportation, one of the two transportation chair for the senior PGA golf event, uh, at the Prestonwood country club in Cary, North Carolina. So I spent a week, week doing that. And of course that's mentoring adults who are volunteers, you know, it's really hard with adult volunteers because they think they know what they think, what they want to do, <laughs> and not want to do. And so you have to really, it's harder to motivate an adult than it is, is a growing, a growing young person right out of college. I can imagine. So I, so I do that. And then I, and I have been substitute teaching for the last four years. I have an ed, I have an undergraduate education from Bowie State University, um, which is a historically black college and university. So I, but I don't look like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I help create the, 
uh, Minority Interim Advisory Board at North Carolina State, and I created the um, director position for uh, diversity and inclusion. And in, I guess back in 2007 for the Southern Association of College Employers. So I think, I mean, I've always been in, involved in diversity stuff like that. And of course, in the last four years, I've been substitute teaching. And last January, I got a call and they asked me if I could do a long-term sub. So from January through May of last year, I taught English, I taught middle school, English literature and journalism for five months. Well, that sounds challenging. I mean, trying to work with middle schoolers can be <laughs> quite um, an experience. Well, the, uh, they need it. They've, you know, they've all lost two years. Yeah. Uh, this year I've been doing STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics and English classes. Mostly I, I, they call me every single day and I try not to work all the time, but, <laughs> but I do three and four weeks at a time for teachers who, uh, go out on, uh, either, either out, go, Hey, they go out for COVID. So they are out two weeks for that. One of the, one of the math teachers had to, his wife had a baby and he wanted three weeks off. So they called me and asked me. So I went taught math for three weeks. So I'm constantly being called to substitute teach, which is pulling away from everything else, but mm -hmm. that's okay. I think that's what, that's what I'm supposed to do. I, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't get, they pay me a hundred dollars a day. So I, I, they pay me a lot less money than they're paying people to work at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So I, I do it for the love of everybody says, why are you doing it? You're, you're spending all day, but I think the kids need. They need a good role model. They need, uh, people to set some discipline in the classroom and certainly to help them because all mm -hmm. the kids across the country, uh, the, we've lost a lot in the last two years of, uh, in, uh, uh, elementary school and middle school, we've lost math. The seventh and eighth graders are, are, are performing at the third and fourth grade math level. So oh, no. committed myself that if they call about a math sub, I'll go in. Okay. Now, do you have problems relating to kids? In their early teens at 72 years of age? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, at, first, at, first they, like, at first, they see you as a substitute. Mm -hmm. Just someone, they think you're a babysitter. Well, you know, once you set the discipline, I don't have problems relating to them because I've got, uh, you know, been around my kids the whole time and having coached so many. I, when I coached swimming at the Naval Academy, I coached kids that were 18 months old all the way up to to adults, uh, this women, the master's senior master's program. So mm -hmm. I don't have an issue with that. And of course, none of them, they don't think I'm fit 72. They think <laughs> I'm in my fifties. Okay. <laughs> That's neat. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Good. And now when I, I, you know, they get a wake up call. I think the kids, the kids want the discipline and I, that they, they act like they don't want it. And, and the payback is that it's with last year, I had a lot, a lot of issues with a lot of the kids that didn't really want to do the work and such, but. Uh, and I didn't think any of them liked me. And then, so, except for a few, you know, and then, mm -hmm. so this year when I substitute in the different classes, now the seventh graders or eighth graders, when they pass me in the hall, they say, hi, Mr. Pearson, how's your day? Give me a high five. They said, nice to see you again. So obviously, you know, in the payback, that's the word, but you don't know that you're going to get, if you made an impact until later, mm -hmm. we all want to see, we all want to see instant results today. And that doesn't, that doesn't happen. So I, I get a kick out of it. And, you know, and of course doing middle school and high school, I see some of the kids in the high school. Now I was, I, I'm the high school for three days to learn English. I see kids in the high school that I saw four years ago in the middle school. So it's, and they tell Mr. Pearson's Mr. You know, Mr. Pearson's an okay guy. Mm -hmm. Don't mess with Mr. Pearson. So that helps too. Yeah, absolutely. 
And how did you stumble on uh, substituting? Did you just decide to do it one day or how did that come about? I saw, I saw in an the paper about the fact that they didn't have, they didn't have enough substitutes four years ago. So, uh, I contacted, I do the independent schools, uh, high school and middle school here in town, not the county school. So it's a very small, it's a small, I didn't want to do county schools. I could substitute mm-hmm. every day of the year, but I, I don't want to spread myself too thin. And I want to have some time for myself. So I saw a thing and so I, I signed up the first year and I substituted some a little bit here and there and got to where I saw that it was enjoyable. Then I, then once the pandemic hit, I saw that, that they couldn't find subs and I, so. I had followed. So I said, well, if you got a half a day, that, did you need a sub or you last year I said, you've got a half a day or you can't, or you, or you, or last minute, you can't find somebody call me. Mm-hmm. So I started getting calls at 6 AM, which meant they were in a panic. They couldn't find anybody. Wow. Uh, so I, I, I you know, I can't say no. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can say no. I can't say no. You know, if, if they need, they need help, you know, cause otherwise the teacher is going to have to give up their planning period to substitute or they send the kids to the library and they lose even more contact with, with the curriculum. So. Right. I I give all credit to my 11th grade English teacher for uh, developing me into a writer myself. And so I know that as a substitute, especially in a long-term situation where you're going to be there for a couple of months or even a couple of Uh weeks, you can really start planting seeds. That's all you're doing is planting seeds in their mind. Oh, sure. And then hopefully they'll, you know, fertilize that as they go along and dwell on it and see some opportunities and pursue them. Yeah, I think that, that's that's the really neat part about it. Mm-hmm. Now, did this require any changes uh, for you? Like, did you have to get any training or special licensure? No, I had not. Well, so, so no. Uh, because, well, I have an undergraduate degree in education. So oh. I'm a certified teacher. Okay. Uh, but the, and I have, uh, you know, the masters in engineering. So they, all they do, they take your resume and they have to have your, uh, your, uh, all, all of the transcripts and stuff. Now I should be qualified for a level one teacher and they only mark me as level three. They don't give me credit for, I think it's a difference of $35 a day. Okay. Uh, they don't give me credit for my masters because it's not a masters in education. <laughs> of course. They, uh, so. Uh, but that, that's the parochial nature of anything that's organized by a union mm-hmm. and, and uh, I don't know, off the record, on the record, whatever, I think it's a disaster because we knew 10, 15 years ago that this country was going to need people like me and others like me that worked in business that are retiring because we, you know, I'm, if I don't retire, if I didn't retire, I wasn't going to be able to collect my pension. I would just keep working and lose my pension. So we retire and then we've got these great mathematicians and physicists and, and people who do, uh, many kinds of things are perfect to be teachers, but if they don't, if they don't pay you much more than minimum wage, then people are going to say, well, I'm not going to go in and do it. I don't need to do that. It's a real disaster. You know, Eric, I've often thought of that myself because I would love to go in and teach some kids journalism, for example. I'm experienced. Sure. I used to be a magazine editor and I've been doing online right. reporting for many years. And so I have the skill, the talent, the passion to do it, but I don't have that degree in education. And therefore I can't come in even to teach one class a day. You know what I mean? Or one class a week, if that's the case well, that I needed. You would be able to substitute, but you couldn't go in and teach. Right. Yeah. Right. You, could, you couldn't, you couldn't go in as an adjunct professor and teach. Right. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, so, and I was an adjunct professor at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for 2008 to 2014, but they recognized my master's in engineering. And I also knew that the dean of engineering happened to be someone I had met when they were, he and his wife were at NC State and had developed a relationship so that I got called out there. So I was an adjunct professor out there and did some, some engineering class teachings, but that was kind of ad hoc, mm-hmm. nothing for pay or anything. Okay. And you're right. They don't, they don't want, they don't want people. They'll tell, they don't want people that, that are, are degreed by life experience. Right. They want people that are degreed by that piece of paper. And that's a real shame. I agree. I agree. These kids can't write. These kids can't write. They can't spell. They can't capitalize. They can't read cursive. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to punctuate. That's right. Exactly. They can't write complete sentences. I mean that you're absolutely, you're definitely, that's why I volunteer. I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer and, and love math and science and taught by, taught by, taught science back in the 1980s, but I'm much happier in the, in the English classes because the kids, that's where they need to help the most. If you can't communicate, you can't write a letter, you can't fill out a, a resume, you'll never get a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree if with you that. If you can't read, you'll certainly not get, be able to get past history and English in college. And I think so. They're destined for failure. I, and I agree. So many other people who are professionals in whatever their career field could come in to a class and teach uh, a kid one hour a day or something like that and give them a little break, give them more ability to have more purpose in their lives. It is a tragedy that they don't do that. Now, well, the only way you can get that now is to, uh, because they can't get coaches because coaching, coaching, coaching and running the, ba- leading the beta club and things like that are extracurricular activities for teachers. And so a lot of teachers aren't doing it, so mm-hmm. they can't get that. So as long as, as long as a teacher doesn't want that job, then they will take somebody in the community. Oh. So, so, you, so you could, so if you found a school that had a beta club, uh, which is for the brighter kids and then you, then you're, that want, they want to be involved and you, you do things, you know, to teach them things like debating and stuff like that, then mm-hmm. those kind of things are available. Okay. Now, did you find working at a private school to be better? You said that that's what you're pretty much focusing on rather than the public schools? Well, yes, no. So, so here's how I've told people over the years. Now, I, so I taught at Severn School, which used to be a, a live-in school, what used to be a prep school for the Naval Academy. So it became a private school back in the 1990s. It was, uh, and so I taught, I taught the, I taught the physics class. I taught five science, middle school science classes. I coached soccer, swimming, basketball, and lacrosse. So I got to know all the kids. And and in the private school, they don't pay you nearly as much as they pay you in public school, which is a travesty as well. So you're getting so. But in that scenario, since the kids are paying a lot, parents are paying a lot of money to go to school. There was there was no more than fifteen kids per class. Okay. You can really get into the curriculum. You can really work with the kids. 15 kids a class, you're teaching six classes. You got 90 kids, uh, over here at the, uh, at the middle school, there's 30 to 35 kids per class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be, a, would allow you to have a greater impact on fewer students. And then I would imagine that the discipline is a little bit easier in a private school. I, I could be wrong. What do you think? Well, absolutely. Uh, but you have, you have the same, you have the same kids in a private school that you have in a public school. You just don't have so many of them. Okay. And, uh, 
you have some of the, you have discipline issues. You have kids that are, are extremely bright. Uh, you have kids that, that are from, you know, Robert Jones, the fourth or something, and they feel mm-hmm. entitled. And so you have that, you have more, I think back then you had more, uh, more of the alcohol and drugs in the high school kids because it was more available because they had the more money and such. Uh, but the impact you can have is so much greater. Now I had one of the kids I had in my class, his name is Hubby Grovesner. He was dropped off. He lived in Annapolis and he was dropped off uh, and picked up every day in a Bentley. <laughs> okay. well, his, his grandfather, his grandfather created National Geographics. Oh my. And he was a cool, he was a nice kid. He played soccer for me, soccer team, but he was a goof off. I mean, I'm sure he, I'm sure he straightened out like, oh, but he had, had life so easy <laughs> that, that, you know. But then there was, the, but then there was another kid. There was another kid that, um, Michael Jennings, I remember him. He was, he was a young black, black boy in the seventh degree. This is, this is 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, his great, his father was a, uh, janitor in a local public high, elementary school. He was given a scholarship to attend seven schools. So he attended seven school for free. And I had him in, I had him in the seventh grade. And he, he was, he was, a, he was a funny guy, goof off, but not, not, very, not much of academics there. Yeah. Uh-huh. He was a basketball player. In fact, he ended up starting on the varsity in the eighth grade. Uh, that's how good he's basketball. And, uh, and so what I did in my classes, so I had science classes, I would do a lot of quizzes in the first three weeks to figure out who was who. And so when we did lab, so I would pair up the lowest performing student in my science class with the highest performing student. I said, it's your responsibility to help your partner. So if I, if we, if I had, we'd have, we'd be dissecting uh, worms and things. And if, and so I would, if I asked Michael, so, so let's, let's say I asked Michael a question in lab. I said, what's, what does allegory mean? He'd say fish. I'd say, eh, wrong. I said, ask your partner what it is. And his partner would give him the answer. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, correct. You get to 10 points. So they, these kids learn that they could depend on each other and they got, they got team grades. And so those kids have, so the interesting thing was, of course, the next year, that's when I moved on to radar defense electronics. Uh, I found out later that those kids in that class, that seventh grade class worked with him. Now I'll call it, I'll call it carried him, but they be, they were his friends and they knew that he was a good basketball player. They helped him. They helped him graduate through high, to high school, not, not because he didn't get passed on just because he's a basketball player. He actually graduated from the private mm-hmm. school. Okay. He went on to play, he went on to play four years of basketball at Penn State, got a college degree and went and played <laughs> past basketball in Europe. Okay. That's I mean, great. I had, I had no clue that, that, that <laughs> thing I was creating was something that the kids would, would buy into. So that's what. You just say, that's the impact. I didn't plan on that. I didn't know it would work. It just made sense to me mm-hmm. that if, if you give, if you get a kid an opportunity to succeed, then they may try. If you tell them you can't succeed and you don't give them the tools, they'll fail. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the books that you've written. Okay. The first, the first book I wrote was called Ryan stories, God's perfect child. Uh, when Ryan, as I said, Ryan was born profoundly disabled. He couldn't. He was, he didn't have, he didn't have your brain. His brain was all mismosh and stuff. My wife, uh, had suffered for severe Crohn's ever since high school and didn't know it till after Rye was born. What was wrong with she always had stomach issues. So in the second trimester, when the brain was supposed to develop, uh, 
his brain didn't develop because she wasn't getting enough nutrition. Mm-hmm. So we, at, at two and a half months, he started having grand mal seizures. And, uh, so then we went, we went to, uh, had a really good pediatrician. Then we ended up going to Johns Hopkins for a weekend. After a week at Hopkins, the, they, they told us, well, you should take your son home and make him a ward of the state. He'll never be anything and he won't live to be past two years old. Well, so we gave 24 hour care, which my wife did, did most of the care over the years. And she eventually, cause her health, she quit, she quit working. And I, that's when I had to pick my career up and she took care of him. So he passed away in his sleep when he was 14. So the next three years, my grieving process, I wrote, I wrote the story of his life and self-published where stories, God's perfect child. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from his perspective, as if he's telling the story of his life. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. So I published that myself. That was the early days of, 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 uh, self-publishing and print on demand. So I published them through, so I published them under my own moniker through, uh, and I had Arbor books. that paid them to, to print me a thousand copies. And I think I have about a hundred left. I've been giving, I've sold it maybe 125. Then I realized that wasn't what God's purpose with me and writing books. Mm-hmm. So I've given the rest away. I've got a hundred of those left. The second book, which I published in 2017 is called, um, uh, um, what's his name? I bring up. I don't know what's what's all right. Hang on a second. Sure. Uh, oh, the people you meet in first class. Oh. Chance meeting becomes like when chance meetings become life changing conversations. And it's the stories of my traveling for work and, and stuff for, for uh, 40 years. It goes back 40 years of stories of meeting people and seeing people and what you see in airports and on planes and stuff and, and conversations you I've had with people that, that, either change me or change them or stuff. So that's the one I did in 2017. And the book I'm about to release now is, uh, called, um, and that's the one, that's the book that I were, that I published through author Academy lead. I decided that if I wanted to be more professional about it, I should go follow someone, someone's model and stuff. So I use author Academy lead to, to do that. And so it's published under author Academy lead, but, but it's in you know, but it's self-published. Okay. And so the book now, the book now I'm releasing is, uh, what's cooking, feeding the heart and soul one meal at a time. So it's the, my history starting from the boy scouts, learning how to cook through, through my life of cooking, cooking for other people and experiences. And I was the last three years I worked, I worked out in California on a special assignment at the senior executive level. Uh, and so. Mm-hmm. Rather than go out and drink and party and eat out a lot, I cooked inside a, you know, a little studio at the residence in El Segundo and started creating recipes and started watching Chopped on the Food Channel and all that kind of stuff. And I just got a real kick out of it. So that book was intended to be 20,000 words, black and white, only a few pictures and very few recipes. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it became, uh. 292 pages, all color, uh, 178 pictures. <laughs> and, uh, I can't afford to put the price, price it high enough, but I'll even make, I'll even make a dollar off of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I won't make any money selling the books. And, <laughs> and once they raise the price to public printing in November 1st, I probably lose a dollar and a half for every book, <laughs> but it's what I wanted to do. So I would, right. so what I do is I'll do the other ones. I will, I will have a lot of, uh, you know, a couple hundred copies printed and I'll have them and I'll, and I'll, I'll give them to people or I'll sell a few, but that's, 
that's, that's, that's the next chapter. I got the print. I've been reviewing the print copy the last couple of days. So that, that'll be out by December 1st. Super. Sooner. A little while ago. You it's, about pe- it's about people. Okay. Very good. A little while ago, you were talking about Ryan's story and how you had a thousand yeah. books printed and you, uh, have a hundred left, but you don't know if you, you know, you didn't sell a lot. So you didn't think that it was, uh, it was a sign that it wasn't God's purpose for you to do that. But I don't think that's right. I think you are going to be surprised at some point at the people who read that story and it opened their eyes to the plight of parents who have to deal with profoundly disabled kids and also what the kids might be going through uh, in that same situation. So I wouldn't say that it wasn't necessarily God's purpose. A, it helped you through your healing process. And by doing that, you're helping others. Oh, no, no. I agree with you there, but the purpose was not financial gain. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. No, I'm thrilled what I do. And, and, and I, and I don't, I, you know, and I'm happier that, that I didn't make money on it because that, that's why I just start giving away people to, I, I can see someone hurting in it. So, yes. Uh, they, they had a, they had a, they had a group at North of Grumman that it was, uh, I found out about, uh, that was, uh, for parents who'd lost children. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I've done that. So, but, but I don't want to join a group. I've been through my healing process. I really didn't need to join a group. So I, so I said, I'll be glad to talk to the, to the group and, and tell them and share my story and how I got through it all. Mm-hmm. So I met one day, spent an hour and a half with them and, uh, tears flowing left and right, uh, my, mine and theirs, and then gave everybody a copy of the book that says, I hope, hope this helps you with, with your own journey that, that every single person has, has, has a value in life. Warren, right. who had, he, he could cuddle, he could love, he, he was cortically blind. He couldn't see, he couldn't talk, but you could tell when he was happy. And, mm-hmm. and Erica, who my, our youngest is now 29 with her own daughter of a year and a half old. I coached her, all her friends in, in soccer and basketball, and they were around the house all the time. And they saw the love that Ryan got. And they all, they all didn't mind sitting next to Ryan or holding Ryan. It didn't scare them to be around somebody that was, was mm-hmm. brainless, we said, you know? Okay. So now Ryan, Ryan's purpose was greater than mine. And me telling a story was what I thought I needed. And it, and it healed me. It healed me right. greatly. Mm-hmm. You know? That's, that's, that's wonderful. That's an excellent kind of purpose to be pursuing. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you had your life to live over again after 50, would you do anything different? I doubt it. No now, people. I've thought about that over the years, even with all the, even with the, the, uh, permanent separation that Kath and I went through this past year that I still don't understand why I would not. I'm happy with who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm happy with, I'm happy with what, where the people, there's so many people helped me in my career because they saw me working and I helped so many other people. If, if you change one thing, you change everything. And I, I wouldn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to do it again. Well, that's good. Very good. Uh, do you have any things that are still on your adventure list of things you'd like to do or accomplish? Well, if we up in this country, I want to start traveling again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got. I've still got hotel points and, and, uh, airline points, shut down. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, I've got, uh, I have always had a dream to, uh, well, I'm, I'm currently writing a couple of children's books and I've got, I found a guy who's got PTSD from having lost his leg a couple of years ago in a freak accident, uh, where his brother-in-law swung a, uh, swung and loader around him 
took his leg off. Mm. He lost seven pints of blood and almost died. Oh so my. He's been going through cheat. I got, so I've been talking a lot with him and, uh, and he see, he, he called me one day and said, you saved my life. I said, what do you mean I saved your life? All we did was talk a couple of times and chit chat about North Carolina state sports. He said, no, now you gave me hope. And so that's, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. I met, mm-hmm. I met a, about three or four years ago, a former quarterback from Auburn university. I mean, all he wanted to do was hear about my stories. And then we became fairly good friends. And I found out later from his parents that he's 36 years old now that he was in the deep depression and, and he was at the point of considering suicide. Um, so he was in, the, you know, in his thirties because he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. And he wasn't a professional quarterback, wonderful young man. I play golf with him all the time now. Still, he's living with home and mom and dad. He's in his mid thirties, he's a scratch golfer, but he still, he hasn't found where he wants to go yet. So that's what, uh, I just, you know, God give me a certain kind of personality and a wit that, that sometimes doesn't come across right mm-hmm. <laughs> and other times. And so I think I'm supposed to speak, speak to people and embarrass myself <laughs> in front of other people, my wife and the stuff I get, because there's someone who needs to, someone who needs help. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, these people who put their masks on and project a perfect image, right? They don't ever want people to see their flaws. Yes, right. uh, people can't relate to those, those folks. They just can't. Yeah. It's people who have had problems and overcome them. Those are the stories yeah. that people love to hear about because it inspires yeah. them as well and gives them hope and encouragement. How would you define retirement? Retirement for most people is where you quit on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I refuse. I think retirement is an opportunity to share and give back years of what you've learned to other people. And along the way, take enough time to enjoy yourself. If you're lucky, the helping other people is what gives you the joy. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. So what advice would you give to people over the age of 50 to help them either identify or pursue their passions? I think, uh, first of all, sit down and do it and do a person, do it, do a, a self-assessment, mm-hmm. write down the good, the good, the goods and the bad about you, your life, your personalities, evaluate yourself every day and say, what is it, what is it I could do if, if I really put my mind to it mm-hmm. and then go try things and not be afraid to make a mistake. Okay. Have you ever taken any I've tests? Seen too many, I've seen too many engineers from Northrop Grumman that within six months after they retired, they died because they had no, they had no other life. No they purpose. Just wealth to the waste it's very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they were healthy when they retired. Mm-hmm. Have you uh, ever taken any tests to identify personality traits or natural skills? Well, I've done lots and lots of that because I was human resources were part of the time. And of course I, we used all those kind of things with, uh, um, uh, with the leadership program and all we, we, uh, did a lot with, uh, Steve Farber and the, the greater than the self did all his leadership stuff we ran through and his books and stuff. So yeah, I've taken all sorts of testing. I even taken, uh, even taking intelligence tests, find out I was smart enough, smart enough, or, or whether I was just a stupid person <laughs> and I was failing because I was stupid or not. I've even done all those kind of things. But yeah, I've done, yeah, whatever, all the, we always had to do the latest and greatest of, uh, of the self-assessment things. And I've seen some that have been okay. And some that haven't been, uh, not so gay, but all the inventory, the self-assessment inventory stuff. 
mm-hmm. uh, are important. I see myself as a, a realist and a philosopher. And most people would say that's probably, they would identify me that if I didn't say that on my own. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate the time. No problem. This has been a great no problem. interview. I hope I, hope I can help. I'd love to see if it helps you get along with what you want to do and pursue your thing. I think that's a fantastic thing. I really appreciate Eric Pearson for sharing his story with us. Being a teacher today is hard enough. Being a substitute teacher for squirrely middle school-aged children can be incredibly challenging. Yet Eric finds his demeanor with students allows him to relate well with them to the point he can impact their lives even on a short-term basis. His teaching skills are desperately needed. Due to COVID, he said students pretty much lost two years of education and development, and they're hungry for a return to normalcy. Even worse, when it comes to math, 7th and 8th graders often perform at 3rd and 4th grade level. One of my favorite quotes of the interview was when Eric explained, you may not think you're getting through to them or having any impact at the moment, but later you discover they really were listening and you've influenced the direction of their lives. In addition to teaching, Eric also authored a book based on the pain of losing his 14-year-old son who was born profoundly disabled. Titled Ryan's Stories, God's Perfect Child, it was written from Ryan's perspective as though he was telling his own life story, even though he couldn't communicate when he was alive. His next book was titled The People You Meet in First Class, When Chance Meetings Become Life-Changing Conversations. It was based on Eric's 40 years of air travel experiences, both in coach and first class. It showed how chance encounters with people can have significant impact on the trajectories of their lives. His latest book, What's Cooking? Feeding the Heart and Mind, was released in January, follows Eric's lifelong pursuit to learn how to cook, starting when he was a Boy Scout and continuing until he was an adult on assignment for three years and living in a California hotel. Eric has no plans to slow down anytime soon. In fact, he sees retirement as a golden opportunity to share with others all the things he has learned during his life. To connect with Eric, visit www.facebook.com forward slash Eric dot Pearson dot seven seven nine six. That's all I have for this week's show. If you'd like help in identifying a purpose for your life or to get help planning your next steps, I'm offering a complimentary brainstorming session to members of the Forward from 50 Facebook community. For details, connect with me on Facebook or visit www.forwardfrom50.com. Next week, I'll be speaking with a man who has worked as a crystal fitness trainer until COVID shut down his company. The experience changed the trajectory of his life when he opted to become a mobile service technician at age 57. Ironically, today he has more time off than he ever did while making more than enough money to support his lifestyle. I'll have that interview on the next episode of the Passionate Purpose Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you like this show, please consider leaving a review wherever you've downloaded the episode.